We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. All right, guys, let's turn to uh, Titus 1. Don't forget your phone. <laughs> so Titus 1, it's going to be like, you see that how far back that is there? All right, so if you get to 1st and 2nd Timothy, it's the next one over from there. While you're turning there, what we're going to do is we're going to read actually the entire uh, first chapter this morning, and then we're going to pray and we're going to look at it. So while you're turning there, as we're setting this up, we went through the whole book of Acts last year, and we saw how that second half of the book of Acts was uh, kind of centered around this figure named Saul, or also called Paul, and some of the people who went with him on these missionary trips all over the known world, establishing churches, raising up church leaders, and developing these communities of people who believed in the good news of Jesus and started following him together and learning how to do that more and more. And so one of those places where that happened is this island called Crete. And so it's a Greek community, and one of the young men that Paul was discipling and developing as a young leader is a guy named Titus, and that's who this letter is written to. It's written to Titus as he is continuing to train up and develop and disciple and just be in community with these house churches that were started on this island of Crete. And so read with me Titus 1. I promise it's a pretty short chapter, okay? So it's not going to take too long. Uh, and then we'll, we'll take a look at that together. So this is a letter from Paul to Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. You guys doing good? That's all just the greeting, right? Uh, he could have just said, hey, what's up, Titus? But this is what he said instead. And it's very intentional. Verse five, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And as I directed you to appoint elders in every town, an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are running entire households, sorry, ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. 
For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we look at this letter that was written to someone across the globe thousands of years ago in a different culture and context, that spirit, you would be speaking to us through it this morning. That the men and women and children in this room would hear from you, God. We would hear your word to us spoken clearly. God, anything that would come out of my mouth that would get in the way of that, I pray that you would silence that as we just read Paul saying to silence false teachers. God, would you silence anything that would come out of my mouth that is not pointing people to you? And Lord, would you be exalted and lifted up and heard greatly this morning? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, how many of you guys have ever been like confused for, mistaken for somebody else? Like they think you're somebody else, right? Has that ever happened to you? I've almost gone up to another woman who is not my wife and put my arm around her. Like it's, it's kind of, it's not fun. It's a little awkward, right? Well, believe it or not, and I know this probably will not come as a shock to most of you, but I was once mistaken for a bodybuilder. I would like to say that, you know, this was a long time ago and I, I was a much different looking person back then, but the reality is it makes just as little sense back then as it does today. But it's true. I was once mistaken for a bodybuilder. We had a, my wife's cousin was living in Australia for a while and she met a man there who was from Germany, now living in Australia, and they got engaged and they came back to the States to meet family and he had been told that there is a person in the family who used to be a bodybuilder and was still like really huge, right? And so we get to her uncle's house and we're hanging out and then her cousin's there with her fiance, Dennis. He's a really cool guy. We're just hitting it off. We're having a good time talking about how Germans drink their beer versus how we Americans drink ours, having good conversation. And then after a while, the bodybuilder walked into the backyard and he looks over at him And then Dennis looks back at me and then he whispers something to his fiance and she starts busting out laughing hysterically. And we're like, what's going on? And she could barely get out. He thought thought you were the bodybuilder. (laughs) And I don't know if I was like really puffed up with pride that he would think that about me or if all that had just been shattered by the fact that she was laughing hysterically at the idea They kind of canceled each other out in the moment. But when he saw this other guy walk in, he knew 100% for a fact, there's no way it could be me, right? When you you put me next to, I don't know what bodybuilders look like in Germany or Australia, so I don't know how he got this idea. But when you put me next to someone who had actually been doing that work and training his body and was huge, it's laughable that he thought that about me. And I think in a similar way, 
what Paul's writing to Titus here is, hey, there is a picture of what people in Crete have of a God. There's a picture of what they have of someone who created all things and gives life. There's a picture of what they have of what it looks like to follow after this God. And it is laughable if, if it weren't so sad. Like it it's, fails in comparison to when you actually get a glimpse of the true God. Now, here's the thing though. It's actually understandable too because their culture was so intertwined with all these other notions and ideas. Like when you actually get introduced to something new, it's hard to break away from what you've always known. That's just a reality. And so what we're gonna do is is explore a little bit of the culture of Crete and what they believed and what they were raised in their entire life and how it became hard for them to distinguish between the true living God that Paul had preached, that Titus was preaching, and what they had believed in their lives. So as I mentioned, they were in this island called Crete, which was a a Greek territory. They believed and worshiped in the Greek gods of mythology, right? But in Crete, there was something interesting about what they thought about gods. They actually believed most of their Greek gods were born right there in their island, And I say born because they also believe that they were once mortals, like humans, who then somehow ascended to this godlike state. So Zeus, they have this cave there. Actually, there's there's two caves on Crete. They argue about which one he was born in. (laughs) But they have this, this idea that Zeus was born in the cave in Crete. And what happened was his father before him, Cronus, was because he was afraid of losing his power as a titan to his children, he would actually eat his babies when they were born. So he would have his wife bring his babies to him as soon as they were born, and he would swallow them into his belly, right? I know, weird, right? Remember, we have a lot of weird stuff in here too, don't we? How, how can they believe something like that, right? Well, it was told to them their entire lives. It's something that had been passed down to them and written by their philosophers, by their prophets, by their poets. Sound familiar, right? So how how can they believe that? It's the water they were swimming in. So Zeus, he actually, his, his mother got tired of her children getting eaten by her husband. And so she had him in secret and hid him in a cave. And eventually Zeus, he came and he fought against his father and he sliced open his belly and out popped all of his siblings and they now rule as the gods over the world. But here's another thing they believed about Zeus. Zeus was also, he was a liar. He was a manipulator. He was a womanizer. He was violent. He did some terrible, terrible things. But this was the God that they worshiped as the one who had given them life. So what do you think they tried to emulate? All the Cretan people were known for being liars. In fact, Paul said it right here. He said in verse 12, one of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. What a, like, what a, what a thing to be known for, right? But this is, this is what they wanted. They were worshiping and following after that. So this is actually a quote from a guy named 
and I'm going to butcher this, you guys, Epimenides. Uh, and so this is, this is what he says. He wrote, they fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one. Cretans, evil liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. Who's he writing about? What do you guys think? When he says uh, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies, he's talking about the Cretans. When he says, they fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one, but you are not dead. You live and abide forever, for in you we live and move and have our being. Who's he speaking about? Who is it? It sounds like language that would be used for God, right? For Jesus. Like he's not in the tomb. God in him, in fact, listen to that last line. For in you, we live and move and have our being. Does that sound familiar? This is not the first time that Paul quoted Epimenides. In Acts 17, when he's there in Athens at this place called the Oropagus, it's this place where uh, it's kind of like the marketplace, but it's also where they have all their shrines and temples and, and this big, huge place of worship. And they have all these statues of gods. And in one place, they have a statue to an unknown God. And Paul, we talked about this when we went through Acts last year, he was very uh, good at articulating in different people's contexts, in different people's languages, in their cultures. And he was saying, hey, you, instead of attacking these other statues of false gods, he says, you have a statue to an unknown God because you recognize there's something missing there. There's something else that has to be true in this world. Let me tell you about that unknown God. And in that, when he gets to verse 28 in Acts 17, as he's telling them about God, as he's telling them about Jesus, he says this, for in him we live and move and have our being. Sound familiar? As even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And that's actually a quote from another Greek philosopher, that second part there. Uh, but he, he quoted, he used, so we, we take that, that phrase right there. We've heard that many times probably in Acts. In him, we live and move and we have our being and we say yes and amen because God is the true God who created all things and he breathed his breath of life into humans who were once just dust. And now we are living, we are being, Right? And when we hear that, but what he was actually doing was he was taking a phrase from a philosopher known as a prophet and a poet of their day. And he was contextualizing. He was saying, listen, you've heard this said before. Let me tell you about the true God who has actually given you life and being and breath and movement. So he's quoting this guy again. This was a, a man who was like really well known. He was like the first Rip Van Winkle, by the way. There was this uh, saying about him that he actually slept for like 56 years one time and just like woke up and didn't recognize anything going on. And so they would say of him, oh, he, he must have been like, like really cherished in heaven and they sent him back. And so he, he's got all this wisdom we, we must learn from, Right. I'm willing to bet that was a myth about Epimenides. There's lots of myth and truth like intermingled in about this character. Uh, but he was someone who was renowned for his thought, his thinking, and for his writings. So people would have been following what this guy said very closely. And Paul uses that and says, now let me tell you what is really true. Now listen, here's, here's a question for you guys. 
when we think about how Cretans grew up believing this stuff about God's coming out of a belly and still being alive and now ruling over. They were once humans, but they ascended to a godlike status. And we go, that's crazy. How could anyone believe that? And I say, well, it's because they had writings, ancient writings passed down to them, and they had prophets speaking to them, and this was the culture they were swimming in. And that is so similar for us too, right? And you could start to go, especially young people like, hey, my parents just told me this is true. How do I know it's no different than what Epimenides was saying? Especially when you start to hear that Paul, one of the people we read his writings most often in the New Testament, was taking words from that guy, Epimenides. How can we know and trust that this is somewhat or somehow different than what they were believing? What do you guys think? Yeah, there's like eyewitness accounts, right, of Jesus not only dying, but then the tomb being empty and being back alive him coming and healing people. What else? How do we know we're not just like swimming in the, the waters and the culture of this story and it's not the true story? There's still prophecy? Oh, fulfilled prophecy, yeah. I like that one better than still prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Yeah, these, these are a collection of many different books, 66 books written in many different parts of the world over generations, right? Thousands and thousands of years. And Jesus fulfilled all these prophetic sayings from different people over that time. That's good. Now, I'm not trying to like lead us in like an apologetics thing, which just means like a, giving a defense for your faith. That's not the goal here. Here's one of the main things I actually want us to see is I want us to see how different the God Paul is talking about is from these other gods that people were following and worshiping. Because when Paul introduces the God of the Jews, who is actually the God of the whole world, who called the Jews just to be a representative people to invite the other nations in, including these Cretans, he says in the very beginning, he says that God cannot lie in verse 2. Right away, he's setting a distinction between the God they knew, Zeus, who was a liar and manipulator to get his ways. And he's going, no, 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 this is a God of truth. And what he's going to continue to do throughout Titus, and we're going to unpack that more and more, and Anthony will do a great job with that next week in chapter two, with some very hard verses, by the way. Uh, So that's why I'm going to Ecuador. So what we're going to continue to unpack through that is Paul continues to set up this distinction. This is how different this God is from your gods you believe. Now, here's the big difference. Every God that a human's gonna make, fashioned in their own image, is gonna reflect the brokenness of humans. That's why Zeus was a liar, a manipulator, a violent person, and a womanizer. Why? Because that's what the Cretans were like. See, they thought this is Zeus and we're going to be like him. But actually, it was the other way around. Because they believed he was a man who ascended to godhood, in a sense he was, because it came from their ideas. This is, when you fashion a god, you're fashioning it in your image. And Paul's saying, no, this is the other way around. This is a god who fashioned us into his image. And so anytime uh, someone creates a system of beliefs or a God that they can follow, either that God is going to have all kinds of faults and failures like Zeus did, or it's going to be a God who is so perfect and yet the way to him is unattainable. 
because he expects you to climb your way up to his perfection. That's Buddhism, right? Like you, you actually have to become a certain thing in order to ascend to that Zen-like state. This is the only God, the God Paul's writing about, the God that Titus was preaching in Crete, the God that Jesus reflected perfectly and came preaching good news of his kingdom, is the only God who is both 100% perfect, infallible, always does what is good, right, and beautiful, never lies, and comes down to you to rescue you in the very place and state that you are in. Doesn't expect you to get it all right and become perfect first, but moves toward you with grace, with love, with gentleness, with mercy, with forgiveness, and then in his power makes us able to stand in his righteousness. It is the only religion that tells that story. It is the only faith. It is the only story that talks about a God like that throughout all the world. And so I can't tell you, I'm not going to give you like a proof or fact that says this is how you know it's true, but I am going to tell you this is the better story to follow. And here's the thing. When you start seeking that story, you start searching in that story, is this true? You have a God who comes and meets you there. How do you know it's true? It's when that God meets you in that place. And so Paul's encouraging Titus, hey, invite people into a better story. Everyone in Crete is living in such a way that is just after themselves. If they have a God who will lie and manipulate, they too will lie and manipulate to get their way. If they have a God who will be violent against anyone who stands against him, they too will be violent when anyone makes them mad. If they have a God who is a womanizer, they too will be sexually promiscuous. Tell them there's a better story. Invite them into a better way. And so what we see in Titus is there's a whole list of ways that Paul's saying, here's how people can live in that culture. And it sounds like a rule book. It sounds like a list of do's and don'ts at first. And it sounds like, especially to us in our culture today, when we're reading someone else's mail, literally, it sounds like that doesn't make any sense to me and how can we even do that? But remember, what Paul's doing is he's entering into their culture, he's speaking their language, and he's saying, here's how in the midst of all of that story, you live a better story. Here's how you can show a God who doesn't lie. Here's how you can show a God who actually shows forgiveness and mercy, not violence. Here's how you can show a God who's faithful and not just getting what he feels like he wants in the moment. That's what all of Titus is about. It's taking the truths of God, the story we believe, and it's saying, now live that out and display that to the watching world around you. Live in a way that you are actually reflecting a mirror back to the true God, the one who is always good, right, and beautiful. Not the gods of Zeus and Poseidon and Hera, all those people, but live in a way that is showing them what the true God is like, the one that you've been made in gods. You see, if they believe that gods were men and women who became gods, Paul and Titus are telling a story of a God who became man. And it flips it upside down. 
a God who is sitting on his throne in heaven, who created all things, that truly all things find their living and being in him. And yet, this God who had no need to do this, who didn't have to prove anything, who, who wasn't lacking anything, decides to make himself small and fragile in the form of a baby human. So that, so that he could come and be with us. The Greek gods were, were once with them. They were born right there in Crete and they left. They ascended to go somewhere else. The God of the Bible, the God of the world is a God who came to be with us. Emmanuel, God with us is Jesus' name. And he lived among us as a man. And he suffered all the same things we have suffered in this life. He faced all the same temptations we have faced. And he took on the brokenness of this world as he had friends who left him and abandoned him. As he had people spit in his face and mock him. As he had people hit him and whip him and drive nails through his hands and his feet as they murdered him. He suffered the brokenness of our rebellion as he faced death. That's the God of this story. When Zeus is lying and manipulating to get his way and protect himself at the expense of mankind, God, at the expense of himself, is helping to restore us to life. It's a better story. Now here's the problem. Just like the Cretans, we are surrounded by other stories. And we get this story of a God who came down to us and we start intermingling it and intertwining it into the stories that we're living in. The stories of our culture, just like the Cretans. But you know what? There's another threat here. Paul says, actually, verse 10, there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially... Catch this. This is not especially the Greek people who are telling you about Zeus. He says, especially those from the circumcision party. If you remember what that was in the Old Testament, he's talking about people who are teaching them you need to become Jewish first before you can be accepted by God and follow Jesus. He's saying you have to follow the Jewish customs. So not only was the Cretan way of following false gods a threat, but actually the very religious way of the Jews, he says especially is a threat. That's another story getting mingled and intertwined into the true story. Don't we have the same problems today? One time we were doing an event at an apartment when we were doing this apartment ministry. We were in the apartment clubhouse. We were throwing a party. It was around Christmas time. And one of our residents came down and he's holding in his hand a Santa Claus hat. And he goes, he, he was like ex-military. He had just recently gotten out of the military. And he goes, I'm going to wear this because I can now. And he puts it on. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's weird. Like you can wear a Santa hat whenever you want, man. I don't care. And he's like, he's like, when I was in the military, like, you, they're like, my sergeant wouldn't let us talk about certain things. He's like, but I went in there one time and it was like around Christmas time. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm wearing this. I don't care. I'm a Christian F you. And he gave him the middle finger. 
a couple of stories getting blended together there, aren't there? Does that reflect the true story of a God who came to us in mercy and forgiveness and love to restore us into right relationship with him and with one another? Or might it reflect a couple other stories in our culture, right? You don't tell me what to do. I can live how I want to live. The individualism story of America, right? (laughs) Santa Claus, that's a whole other story getting mingled into our Christianity, isn't it? You see how easily it, and we can laugh at that, right? This is a real person made in the image of God, and he was trained in certain ways. He had been given not only this story, but a few other stories his entire life. And it happens to all of us. We can laugh at an extreme example that I share in a moment, right? A little snapshot of that person. But when we examine our whole selves, don't we have those little snapshots too? They might look a little different, but aren't there other things we're intertwining into our story? What are those things? What are some of the things in our culture that get mixed into our faith of following Jesus? And that's a real question. You guys can shout some out. What are some things that get mixed in to following Jesus to the true story? Yeah. Yeah, we have these expectations of what we think a a man should look like and do and what a woman should look like and do, right? And then we'll pull out like one verse from here somewhere and we'll be like, this is it. See, I, I got back up here to tell you, but a lot, a lot of times it's actually coming through cultural stories. Another one, Jonas? You still be friends with them. Yeah, still love them, still show them the love of Jesus. Like celebrate the ways that they are made in the image of God and displaying the goodness of God in certain ways. And yes, at the same time, Connor, like we do want to be able to share truth and good news with them. And that's part of what Paul's writing in here too, right? So I want, to, I want to also be careful with that because Paul's also saying, hey, listen, this is truth. Live in a way that reflects the truth so that the culture around you sees that. But you're right, not in a way that pushes them away with confrontation, but in a way that welcomes and invites them in to say, here's a better story for us to walk in. Yeah, you're, you're raising an interesting thing, Connor, because it makes me think of when we... When we get to especially chapter two, good luck, Anthony, there's going to be some things where you go, why doesn't Paul just say, hey, stop doing that thing, right? For example, there's slavery. And and there's lots of different forms of slavery that was happening in this culture that are different from the form of slavery we know in the history of of our culture. But at the same time, like you want to go like, why didn't Paul just say like, let your slaves go free, right? Why, Why doesn't he just say, hey, live this way and kind of force them to. And in the same way, you got to ask the question, when Jesus came and he walked on this earth, why didn't he overthrow the Roman Empire that was being oppressive and abusive to the Jewish culture? Why didn't Jesus come for the throne and the kingdom of Caesar, right? Why didn't he just put an end to it right there? Yet, Jesus came for a bigger mission. Jesus was actually saying, hey, I I want your life. I want your soul. I I want to restore a new humanity that can actually live in the midst of a broken world and show the culture, not with a a middle finger 
and an F you, but show the culture around, this is a better story to live in. And so Jesus giving new life and his spirit coming and empowering his followers, it wasn't putting an end to the Roman government, but what it was doing was inviting people all throughout the known world into true life. Because what he knew is the Roman empire would eventually fall. He didn't have to come and shut it down himself. That, those things are temporary. It would eventually fall. What he was inviting them into was something that would last forever. I think in the same way, when we get to a lot of this stuff in Titus, Paul's doing a similar thing. He's saying, our battle's not to fight against and shut down these things that are temporary anyway. They're not gonna last. The goal here is, how can the spirit of God help us to live as faithful, eternal people in this broken moment? How can we live in the midst of a culture that's not going to last, it will not be here forever, yet in a way that is inviting and welcoming people into a kingdom that will be eternal. So when Jesus goes into the grave, he doesn't stay there. That, that tomb that they put him in could not last. It could not hold him there forever. By the spirit of God, by his power, he breaks forth into new life. He exits the tomb. The stone is rolled away. In the same body that he was born in as a man, God himself walks out of that tomb. And then his spirit then is breathed onto his people. His spirit is given to all who would follow him. Not so that they can live perfectly, but so that they can live in a way that is a small glimpse, a preview, an invitation for others to come and follow him as well. And that is still our role today, okay? We don't live in Crete. We don't live thousands of years ago when this letter was written. But the Spirit has preserved this letter because he still wants to invite us into that same work today. That we can live in a way that shows the truth and the goodness and the beauty of God to the world around us and says, you're invited into this too. Not in an oppressive and offensive way, right? Not in a way that is trying to lie and manipulate, right? Not in a way that is trying to be coercive, like the violence of the day. Not in a way that is trying to just get what we want, like the greed and the lust of the day. But in a way that is showing the goodness of God and saying, you too, you too are welcome to this. He is the God who has come down to us, Emmanuel, God with us. There's all kinds of gods our culture has fashioned with their own hands. And it looks like the culture. We have a God who has fashioned us in his image. And so the invitation is live like that's true. Amen? Let's pray. 